Hello, everyone, and welcome to Most Likely to Read. We are your hosts, Mika. And Ashley. And today we're going to discuss Lord of the Flies by William Golding. So this book was written in 1954 and focuses on a group of British boys who attempt to govern themselves after their plane crashes on an uninhabited island. It is no shocker at first that the boys relish having an entire island all to themselves, but it does not take them long to realize that they have to live in some sort of organized manner if they ever want to go back home. As time passes, the boys find it more difficult to abide by the rules of the civilization they created, especially after their fear starts to consume them. Okay, so let's start with our personal experiences. Me first. Me first, because here is my major complaint. I was forced to read this in high school. I did not have a purpose for reading this. It was not like it was attached to a unit or anything else. Just read it. I, just read it. I was bored. I don't even think I, I, I don't even think I finished reading it. Yeah, I I didn't read this until I was in college, and I just remember thinking the entire time I was reading it, what in the hell is going on here? Uh, after revisiting this novel as an adult, I see a lot more connection than I did when I was younger, but I find it even more revolting, primarily because I think I understand it better now. And yes, I use the word revolting, because at some point I had to force myself to finish listening to it. And I don't say that to discourage anyone from reading it or reading it with your students. I always wanted my students to have a reaction to the text I selected. Good, bad. Sometimes they were absolutely furious with me for making them read something because they did have such a strong response to the text. So strong responses are not bad. And we're going to talk about what made you have such a strong response yes. in a little bit. Yes. But first, full disclosure... I made it to page three this time reading the book. I called Mika and told her I didn't want to read it anymore. And so then I turned to Audible because I like listening to books. So I actually researched this one because I know this is a touchy subject. On one hand, you can ex extract a lot of information from a speaker's inflections and intonations. Sarcasm is more easily communicated through audio than printed text. And people who hear Shakespeare spoken out loud tend to glean a lot of meaning from the actor's delivery. So the same can be said of listening to the author who has a British accent read his novel. And in this case, William Golding, the actual author, reads his novel. Now, he's much older, obviously, because he wrote this book in 1954. Mm -hmm. But you get things from his reading of the novel that you do not if you just read it yourself, because I do not have a British accent and I do not know the different dialects. And there are based on the area where they're Correct. from. Yeah. So... Like some of his characters are from different social classes and therefore they speak with those different dialects, which he makes very clear through his reading. Mm -hmm. One of those is Piggy. Yes. Like he differs from the rest of the boys because he's poor. Right. So let's be clear. I'm not advocating for reading versus listening here. This is not a debate. It's not an argument. But I do think it's a conversation that needs to be had, especially if you're listening to something for leisure versus for work or school. And also there's just some things I quite enjoy listening to, especially if the narrator is really good and others, I need the printed version. Like I, I could not listen to Dante's Inferno. No, absolutely not. I returned that one. That was not happening. No. I needed that in front of me. So it's a matter of preference. And I'm kind of at the point, Mika, where as long as the student's reading, isn't that the point? But if I have to sit on the bus for an hour and I think of my daughter who does have to sit on the bus for like an hour yeah. and a half on the way home, she can't hear anything, but if she puts her AirPods in, she can listen to yeah. a book. Mm -hmm. And so that's 
no longer a wasted hour and a half bus ride. She's now listened to something. And I have found that it's made me a better listener as well, just overall. I mean, I thought I was a good listener before I started listening to audiobooks, but I realized I don't think I was as good of a listener as I thought. And now I've gotten much better for listening for content and for knowledge. And I take notes while I'm listening. Yeah. Also, we're not advocating for playing the audiobook in your classroom. That's just something in case the kid can't get past page three. Like even I as an adult right. who could not do, just give me the audiobook if you want me to right. listen to this story. Okay, so we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, if you've listened to previous podcasts, specifically Pride and Prejudice, uh, you're familiar with the character game that we play. Uh, we wanted to change that up a little bit to focus more on critical moments that support the author's message, to really kind of focus our discussion about the most important things that we wanted to discuss. So we're going to look at several elements uh, that we wanted to highlight for you guys. The first one being setting. Absolutely. And that's because the setting is realistic, intense, and timeless. He also uses vivid language and realism to make you feel like you're on the island. So even though the book was written in 1954, I never felt like I was trapped in the 50s. No. In this book, it's I felt like I was on an island, like it could be today. So it's just as relevant today as it was when it was written. Yeah, I agree which also makes it a little scary too, but we'll get to that later. So the next thing we want to talk about in addition to the setting are specific action moments or scenes that were significant. Mm -hmm. And this is very hard to do with this book. And we refuse to give away the book. Actually, I may refuse more than Mika because it did take me trying to read it and then listening to it to get through this. But now I absolutely <laughs> will not give it away. And it is really good. So you have to either read it or listen to it. But there is one scene in particular that's very significant. So in order to kind of keep the the details of it out of the podcast, this is very vague, but um, it's the scene where someone dies. And you will all know what scene we're talking about. I know that's very vague, but it's the scene, the first, the, the scene that someone dies. And it's kind of the moment where everything starts to just crumble. There's no going back at this point, and it felt like all of the boys knew it, which is why they acted the way that they did. Uh, some were remorseful and left the group, while others turned into complete and total savages. Right. And that brings us to the author's message, which also brings us back to what you were talking about earlier, that revolting yes. feeling about the book, that I think this is where the author's message starts to come out and yes. you start to get those feelings of Bleh. Th th that point. That's when I was kind of like, I don't know if I can finish this. <laughs> I don't know if I can do it, but I did it. But she had to, cause I kept calling her because after that point I, I listened yes. and I was steadily on a run. I'm like, we need to talk about this book. <laughs> so for the author's message part, there's obviously the war and fear are two big themes throughout the book and starting with a lack of adult supervision and watching the boys like steadily turn to savages. Mm -hmm. So you can ask that question. What makes man different from beast? Uh, you can examine finding the devil within yourself or in their case, like their loss of innocence, the darkness in their heart. So the comparison between the Island and the boys and the British Navy at the end really got me this time. The commentary on war and invasion isn't very long, but it is loud and clear. 
how can we call the boys on the island doing what they need to survive savages when the organization of the British Navy has been doing the same thing for years, just hiding under the organization or umbrella of the military? Um, I do think this could be a very interesting discussion with students. I think you're going to have to pull that out for them, though. Yes. Because I was still stuck on back when someone dies and then a couple other things happened. Key, yeah. Key moments happened after that. I was not even paying attention to the message about the organization of the Navy. Right. Yeah. It's right. At, it's right at the end. But it's um, I think his message is loud and clear what he's trying to say. I think it was just clouded. It was. By all the like. Yeah. Because there's so many other things that happen that you're just like, what, what just happened? Yes, exactly. So perhaps the most shocking and yet predictable thing about the novel is that it provides a glimpse into how quickly we devolve into savagery. Uh, as a friend of mine said, here are a bunch of privileged, educated British kids who become savages by the very definitions with which they might label native indigenous people while colonizing. We have seen similar examples in modern times when people are desperate for resources. An example could be after a natural disaster like Hurricane Sandy or even during COVID with toilet paper and food. This really dispels the myth that we are civilized with our actions all the time. And that we suffer from post-traumatic stress because I still have Amazon on monthly recurring delivery of toilet paper and I don't know that I'm going to stop anytime soon. Well, of course you do because we can't do that again, right? Like, okay, but I have no room in my house. It's now like overflowing into my garage. I'm starting to look like a Sam's club. Well, you can give me some and you can spread it out. <laughs> we're we're going to be prepared next time. <laughs> okay. So the next uh, category is character representations. And we're going to start with Ralph and Jack. They both kind of emerge as leaders at the beginning and, Ralph's always the one trying to instill order and believes in rules. And then you've got Jack, who's the epitome of leaving a teenage boy alone on an island. There's no adults. There's no rules. We can do whatever we want to. Both have qualities that would make them a good leader together. But separately, that's what creates the tension that kind of spans throughout the course of the book. Yeah, I agree with that. Because you see the boys even, like a big part of that tension is the boys trying to decide which leader they want to go with and they kind of go back and forth. Well, because Ralph provides fire and shelter, mm -hmm. but Jack is a protector and a hunter. So meat or fire, fire shelter and shelter slash possibly rescue. Right. Because the fire's a sign, supposed to be a sign so anybody can see them. So I also want to talk about Piggy. I think Piggy is the real hero here. He is the reason I think they survive because without his glasses, they would not have had any fire. And fire, as you mentioned, was key for several reasons. Um, he was also the voice of reason several times, and he really tried hard to maintain law and order by constantly reminding them of the conch and what it represents. You said it wrong. I cannot stand the way the author said conch in this book. Conch. Conch. I... I I think I lasted about 30 seconds before I called Ashley and I'm like, I can't listen to this. He says, he says it wrong. It's not right. So she couldn't listen to it, but I could not not listen to it. Oh, drove me crazy. I, I could let the conch go. But it's, it's in every paragraph, in every chapter, they say it at least one time. Well, it's a very important symbol in the book. It is. And that's what your character Piggy is trying to remind everybody. Like he is always holding tight to that 
conch. Oh and God. once everybody, like if I have it, then you have to listen to me. Or it's almost like the speak, a speaking stick or something now, a talking stick. A talking yeah. stick yeah. Yeah. But oh, just don't say it that way. Good Lord. So speaking of saying things that moves <laughs> us into the use of language. I think the book is beautifully written and the range of vocabulary is mind blowing. And again, if I had stopped at page three, I never would have gotten to this. Right. So at one point I started writing words and phrases down, but I, I had to write down those words and phrases that you rarely ever hear. And it made me reflect on how many words we have at our disposal, but how rarely we utilize them. So I think certain parts of this book could be used as exemplar pieces to not only expose students to new words, but also to show students how to use colorful language in their writing. Yeah, I agree. And and it's not just the the words and phrases are are beautiful. It's also the emotions that the words and phrases evoke, right? Like it's you get very strong feelings, good, bad, indifferent, revolting. I don't know that I had any feelings that were indifferent. I don't think I did either, but I thought I'd throw it in there just for good measure. Um but but that's why you have this reaction is because of the way he wrote it. It's it's such beautiful language and it creates such emotion within the reader that it's it's hard not to talk about that. And while we're talking about language, I think we have to talk about the cadence or the pace, which is very slow. It starts out very slow. And it took me a couple chapters in to realize that each chapter did this, but each chapter starts out slow then gets up to its climactic point and then kind of falls down again. Yeah. It keeps twisting and turning and you can't help but wonder what's going to mm -hmm. happen next. And so then you dive into another chapter and then you get slowed down again and you have to push forward and yeah. wait for it. But it does that throughout the whole book. And I think that's important to mention to students because I was struggling with that and I didn't realize that's what it was until Ashley brought that up. And I was like, that makes perfect sense. So knowing that it made it easier to get through kind of the slower bits at the beginning. But once you get into it, it kind of works itself out. But I did have to get used to it. Okay, so we are at our favorite time of the podcast, our superlative time. <coughs> Ashley and I think the superlative that best fits the Lord of the Flies is most likely to make you question your humanity. So if I were going to link this to something contemporary that the kids might know about, I'd say it reminds me of that uh, show 100 on Netflix. The series is about 100 juvenile delinquents who get sent to Earth to see if it's even inhabitable for the rest of humanity that's been living in space for like hundreds of years. So essentially, it's an experiment to see if they can survive. And I can 100% see the Lord of the Flies influence on this show, minus the fact that there are both sexes, which adds a whole other layer. But the same thing happens. They start arguing the minute they land, who's in charge? What should we do first? What's more important, shelter or food? Um, do we get in contact with the Ark, which is their space station that sent them down? So if you need a way to get your kids hooked, I highly recommend asking them to make connections between the 100 and Lord of the Flies as they read the book. All right, you guys, thanks for tuning into this episode of Most Likely to Read. Don't forget to check the website for our show notes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, and follow us on Twitter at Most Likely to Read. We'll see you again next time.